0: All right, you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, roughly in the middle of the Old Testament. We will be in chapter 3 today. So I'm going to read the entire chapter um, so you get the sense of it, and this is a uh, third sermon in this series. This one is called Job's Lament, and I think you'll see why. So let us turn to Job chapter 3, and uh, listen carefully as this is God's Word. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was not or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter and soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, And my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but troubles come. The word of the Lord. A little harder to say thanks be to God today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of Job this morning to, to learn more about how to face the troubles that are common to this life. Lord, we know your word gives us many examples of lament. We just don't know how to do it. So teach us what it is, why it's important, why we need it as part of our lives. So calm our hearts and build our faith and enable us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak. Through the story of a man called Job, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. So we've seen Job in chapter one, all of the disasters befall him. We see more disasters in chapter two, and it ends with him sitting in ashes on a garbage heap in silence. Now, two weeks ago, I compared the book and movie A Man Called Ova and A Man Called Job. And if you remember, in both the book and the movie, Ova is a 59-year-old widower, severely depressed after having lost his wife, Sonia, to cancer. He is a classic curmudgeon with strict routines and a very short fuse. Nobody likes him. People call him the bitter neighbor from hell. But a key part of his story comes from tragedy. Ova and his wife, Sonia, are riding in a tourist bus while on vacation in Spain. And there's a horrible accident. Sonia lost the baby they were expecting and ended up paralyzed from the waist down. And right before the accident, Ova got up to use the restroom so he wasn't sitting next to Sonia when the accident occurred. And Ova wound up blaming himself. He was utterly powerless to stop, change, or fix this tragedy. It would pursue him every night for the rest of his life. By the time he got to the hospital, Sonia was in a coma. And he sat by her bed every moment of the first week until the nurses insisted that he shower and change his clothes. Everywhere they looked at him with sympathetic stares and expressed their condolences. A doctor came and spoke to Ova in an indifferent clinical voice about the need to prepare himself for the likelihood of of her not waking up again. Ova threw that doctor through a door, a door that was locked and shut. She isn't dead, he raved down the corridor. Stop behaving as if she was dead. No one at the hospital dared make that mistake again. The silence lasted for 10 days before Sonia woke up. And Ova told her everything. While caressing her hands in his, he told her about the ear-splitting, crashing sound and about a child that would never come. And she wept. An ancient, inconsolable despair that screamed and tore and shredded them both as countless hours passed. Time and sorrow and fury flowed together in stark, lawn-drawn darkness. Ova knew there and then that he would never forgive himself for having gotten up from his seat at that exact moment, for not being there to protect them, And he knew that this pain was forever. An ancient, inconsolable despair that screamed and tore and shredded them both as countless hours passed when time and sorrow and fury flowed together in stark, long-drawn darkness. A man called Ova and a man called Job. What we just heard was Ova's lament. What we're about to hear is Job's lament. But before we get into that passage, we have to ask, what is lament? For those of us who follow Jesus, we live with down payments on the already of God's kingdom here on earth. We see glimpses of God's healing power, love, and his victory over evil. But we also live in the not-yet of a broken, sinful world. And it is in between the already and the not yet that we wait expectantly for the return of Jesus, who will one day make all things right and whole and complete. Thankfully, we experience glimpses of gospel hope every time we see even bits and pieces of God's power at work. But that final redemption, God's kingdom arriving in full, All brokenness redeemed, all evil thwarted, all suffering ended is our ultimate hope. Now lament, which is a crying out of the soul, creates a pathway between the already and the not yet. Lament mines the gap between our current hopelessness and our coming hope. Lament anticipates a new creation, but also acknowledges the painful reality of now. Lament helps us to hold on to God's goodness while we're battling evil at the same time. Lament is an overlooked genre of prayer that's found throughout the scriptures. There are actually more lament songs than praise songs in the Bible. The Psalms alone contain more than 65 laments. They include laments for fallen warriors, for illnesses, for victims of suffering, for the dead, and far more. There are laments of vengeance, protest, repentance, loss, even depression. And beyond the Psalms, the scripture includes words from very famous lamenters, Rachel, Hannah, Moses, Job, Tamar, Jeremiah, and of course, Jesus. God gives us the laments of those who have gone before us as a way to talk honestly with him, as a way to enter into the biblical story, as a way to connect with the suffering people of God, and as a tool for thrusting our anger and our confusion and our losses at him. And even though laments fill the pages of our Bibles, For most Western believers, lament prayers remain unfamiliar and uncomfortable, just as it was when I read Job 3 earlier. They're mostly absent from our church calendars, our conferences, and our curriculums. But lament is actually a godly concept. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a powerful handhold in seasons of sorrow. God has given us the biblical language of lament as a way to express our pain and to help us survive our suffering. When the days are hard, when grief weighs as much as gravity, when we can't live a minute longer with the pain, when we're angrier or more disillusioned than we ever thought possible, when we can't find the right words for our difficult emotions, when our gnawing questions become too much to handle. Our prayer is that God's Spirit will draw us time and time again to lament. And lament will bring us ultimately into his presence. And this is how, somehow, even in our darkest, most deepest laments, there's hope. Because we don't lament to avoid. We lament to the God who wants our laments. And as we lament, we join in the chorus of those who've gone before us, those who have wrestled with suffering's reality and come out not unscathed, but still proclaiming God's goodness. Lament can lead us back to a place of hope. Not because lamenting does anything magical but because God sings a louder song than suffering ever could. A song of resurrection, of renewal, of restoration, of recreation And lament helps us listen for God's louder song and to believe that one day we will hear it above the noise of our pain. As a whole, perhaps most of the language of Job is echoed in the Psalms, many of which are explicit Songs of lament, songs of spiritual complaint. The bleakest of them all is Psalm 88. Mark taught on that uh, this past uh, fall. It was his favorite passage. In Psalm 88, we read, Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of grief and my life draws near the grave. So it begins near the grave and it ends. Loved ones and friends, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Begins near the grave and it ends in darkness and there's no resolution at all. Psalm 88 could have easily been spoken by Job himself. And yet, Psalm 88 was sung by the people of God in the worship of God in the temple of God. Think about that. When did we last sing a lament? In an important essay that's entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? It's a great title. Dr. Carl Truman of Grove City College wrote, I would like to make just one observation. The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene." I'm not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that it has more to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter has taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they're a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. He goes on, he says, A diet of unremittingly jolly choruses in hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation, which sees the normative Christian life as one long, triumphalist street party. A theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. He recently wrote, he wrote that about 12 years ago, and about two years ago, he wrote a reflection on that, and said, he just sat down one day and wrote it in about 45 minutes, and he's gotten more comment on that than almost anything he's written. And he's written a lot. The ability to honestly lament is going to be one of the key lessons of the book of Job. Remember, this is a divinely inspired resiliency training for believers. Is your faith in God resilient and enduring even in those seasons when you're forced to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Will you be able to say with the psalmist, Psalm 6, I am worn out from my groaning, all night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Or how about Psalm 102? My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. In my distress, I groan aloud and am reduced to skin and bones. Or even Psalm 42. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Biblical laments, one and all. Divinely inspired practice of prayer and most of us have forgotten, and one that we need to recover. And so this morning we're turning our attention to Job chapter 3, and lesson 1 is on how to lament. And so even with these hard words, there's lesson there for us to learn. We start by looking at Job lamenting with anger, lamenting with anger, verses 1 through 10. This cold, comfortless quiet of Job and his three friends sitting on the garbage heap in ashes is shattered as Job begins to sing. It is as stark and as despairing a song as you will ever hear. It is a song of lamentation. Let's look again, starting at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. It starts with Job cursing the day of his birth. He wishes the day of his birth would be removed from the calendar, verse 6. That the great sea monster, Leviathan, would swallow it up, verse 8. That the joy of the night, which the midwife said, it's a boy, verse 3, would be taken away, verse 7. He calls upon soothsayers whose job it was to pronounce curses, asking them to curse that day which has brought nothing but trouble, verses 8 and 9. Every chapter in Job mentions death in some way. And here Job depicts it in such familiar terms as gloom and deep darkness, verse 5. And he wishes that this gloom and deep darkness would claim, dwell, terrify, and seize the day of his birth once more. So that he would have never even existed, verse 3. Job is wishing that he'd never been born. That is hard stuff to read, isn't it? There is a darkness to Job's song that we rarely see. There's a kind of hopeless nihilism in Job's song. Nihilism being a pessimistic emptiness. He's had it with the world. His despair is so pervasive, one of the commentators said he wants the tape rewound on creation itself. And if you read it closely, you'll notice the repetition of day and night, light and darkness, and the role of God. It's intended to be a mirror image of the creation narrative of Genesis 1. Remember in Genesis 1, God speaks and there's light as evening and morning pass and day succeeds today. And God pronounces his benediction upon creation and it's all very good. But here is Job, and he would prefer it If God would pull that on the thread of creation so the very fabric of reality would just come unraveled. He wants the day darkened. He wants God to reject it. He wants chaos and death to replace order in life. He wants creation reversed and undone. What has happened to Job? How would you describe his condition? Job's inner anguish and anger has been boiling up within him and he can no longer hold it in. And this anguish and anger is actually one of the stages of grief. And he has a lot to grieve. And so it just pours out in the darkest chapter of the book. And yet this outpouring of anguish and anger is not even the beginning of a conversation. Chapter 3 is a dramatic monologue. Last week, we watched the loneliness of Job. Now we get to listen to his loneliness. Job's not speaking to anybody. He's not speaking to his friends. The cycle of speeches begins in chapter four. He's not speaking to God. He's just expressing himself, he's just speaking with himself. And no doubt his friends are within hearing distance, and surely God is listening. But this monologue just deepens the loneliness of Job. And although his friends hear his words, it's going to become apparent as we get into the next chapter that they haven't heard his heart. And although God has undoubtedly listened with a father's heart of love, Job has absolutely no awareness of that patient, divine, listening ear at this stage of the tragedy. God may take a believer through times of deep and dark despair. This may happen to a man or a woman who is affirmed by God as a believer before the darkness, who remains a believer in the darkness, and who will finally be vindicated by God after the darkness. He or she may be taken through the darkness, even though they haven't fallen into sin, even though they haven't drifted away from the faith uh, or from Christ. And that's an important truth for us to understand. Being taken into the darkness doesn't automatically mean that you're no longer a believer. It seems that Job has been plunged into the deepest depression. Isn't it? Many of you have endured that, will immediately recognize it. And because some of us have endured it, perhaps are still enduring it, we need, I think, to pay careful attention to how Job responds to it and how he articulates it. Now, on the one hand, we can't really say that Job's words here are healthy or wise or godly. When we hear people talk like this, it's right to be concerned. It's right to be worried about them. In fact, even Job himself, when we get to chapter 6, is going to admit that his words were rash. And yet we shouldn't overreact to rash words and then swing to the opposite extreme. There's a school of thought common among men of my generation that advocates a stiff upper lip in the midst of suffering. The avoidance of any expression of sorrow that would seem to suggest you're not godly if you're not happy. Even in the face of tragedy and loss and pain. I think Job chapter 3 is a really important chapter for contemporary Christianity. It's a sobering passage with one aim, that we might grasp the truth that a real believer can go through times of despair and desperation. That a blameless believer like Job, who has not fallen into sin, may go through a time of feeling utter abandonment. And yet at the end, will still be seen to be a real believer. That we might grasp that we ourselves, even if we walk closely with Christ, might go through a time of very deep darkness. Perhaps deeper because we've walked faithfully in his steps. And as you grasp that sobering truth, we have to learn to weep with those who weep, as we prayed earlier, and not recoil from the anguish and the anger that such darkness brings. We have to learn how to lament. We see Job's tone changes from lamenting with anger to lamenting with weariness, with weariness. And again, we see this in people. He says, starting at verse 11, Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Why did the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master." Life has lost all meaning for Job at this point, And he doesn't understand what's going on. And you notice perhaps the reoccurring question that sums up his confusion over and over again. He asks, why? Verse 11, why did I not die? And he asks why six more times in this chapter. And he's overwhelmed with a need for the answers to these ultimate questions. Why this suffering and why me? And while those questions come from a level of pain that is deeper than any that we have known, his questions are not unfamiliar. We have asked these questions. Why this suffering? Why me? And in times like these, it seems our lives are filled with trouble and unrest. And we end up longing for calm and for rest. This theme of trouble and unrest dominates the remainder of the chapter. In verse 13, he longs to lie down and be quiet, to sleep, to be at rest. In verse 17, he yearns for a life free from troubling, a life of rest. Later on, verse 26, at the end he laments that he has no ease, no quiet, no rest, only trouble. And it's not just the pain that hurts Job, it's the trouble and the unrest Job longs for the place of the dead. Verse 13 piles up four consecutive images of rest. First, I would have lain down. That is, I'm tired. I want to lie down. Then it would have been quiet, away from the noise and turmoil. Third, he says, I would have slept. He would have enjoyed the peace that comes with sleep. And lastly, he would have been at rest. This is just normal human experience. We lie down. We're quiet. We sleep. We find rest. And it is rest. That Job longs for. But then it gets a little different. Who are his resting companions? And here we're surprised. In verses 14 and 15, he speaks of this familiar threesome of powerful men, kings, counselors, and princes. This is sort of a comprehensive way of saying powerful and influential people in the world. In our time, it might include. Presidents, senators, media barons, tech giants, CEOs, billionaires, and anyone else who exercises power. But then in verses 17 to 19, we see a different portrait of his prospective companions. Instead of kings, counselors, and princes, we now have two groups. On one hand, the wicked, who cause trouble, the taskmaster, the great, the master, and on the other hand, the weary, the prisoners, the small, and the slaves. The kings, counselors, and princes are now seen as the oppressors. And here humanity is viewed through the lens of power and divided into the powerful and the powerless. Now think about what we knew of Job at the beginning of chapter 1. We would have put him with the powerful. He was rich. He was wealthy. He had everything you could want. He had servants. People came to him. Now... Job identifies with the powerless. The powerful are wicked and cause trouble for the powerless. The kings, counselors, and princes may have been rich and powerful, but they're wicked. And it's their wickedness that causes so much of the suffering. And Job knows he's not the only human being on the earth to experience unfair misery. And so Job can find no rest on the earth because he identifies now with the small, the weak, and the weary. He experiences with them the restless misery of being oppressed by forces stronger than himself. So it's not that Job particularly wants to be with the kings, counselors, and princes. Rather, he believes that at last, if he's with them in the place of the dead, they'll no longer be able to cause him any more trouble. If I had been stillborn, he says, I would have been in Sheol, the place of the dead, and that would be peace. Now, in clearer moments, Job knows this is not true, and later on he's going to tell us it's not true, that Sheol is a terrible place. But in desperation, he thinks it's the place of rest. The only place I can get peace and rest and calm is if I'm dead. And the deeper reason for his unrest is he doesn't understand, he cannot understand his suffering. He doesn't understand why a believer, a man of great godliness, suffers with such mind-numbing intensity. It's for this reason that he cannot and will not rest until he's found some resolution to these big questions, these why questions. Job is restless, but he's not resigned to his fate. He knows there's something terribly wrong. And we need to see that this unrest is itself a sign of hope that Job is not given up. So he ends his speech with a desperate question. And we move from lamenting with anger to lamenting with weariness to lamenting with bitterness verse 20 to the end, lamenting with bitterness. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter and soul who long for death but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but troubles come. It's interesting, in This God is never mentioned by name. He's only sort of mentioned in passing. But why is light given implies that God has given it. It is from the Lord we receive both good and bad. But who is the light given to? In verse 20 we're told it's given to him who is in misery, which is singular, and so we think of Job. But it's also given to the bitter and soul. Which is plural. And so Job's question doesn't relate to Job alone. The expression bitter in soul speaks of a deep distress. The phrase is used a number of times in the Bible. It's used of the childless and desperate Hannah in 1 Samuel. It's used of King David before he was king. And 2 Samuel when he gets chased out of Jerusalem. We find it in Ezekiel and Isaiah. And in each case, these are men and women who have lost hope and cannot see a reason to go on living. And so Job asks, why does God give them life in the first place? And then verses 21 and 22 speak with a sort of biting and bitter irony. He says, these miserable people, of whom Job is one, long for death with the desire of a treasure hunter, dreaming of death the way treasure hunters dream of treasure. And when they die, their exuberance can only be understood when you think of the treasure hunter striking it rich. We don't think in those terms very often. Then in verses 24 and 25, there's this emphasis of what comes upon Job. His sighing comes to him. His groanings are poured out over him like water. What he fears comes upon him. What he dreads befalls him. You get the sense that he is the target. Things happen to him. What is given by God comes to Job. This is his new reality. But he does not and cannot know why. And that's the source of his deep unease. He knows that God has given it and he knows these things have come to him. But why? The Roman writer Ovid speaks of a terrible curse when someone has a reason for dying but not the means. Job feels like a man on a life support machine who just wants it to be turned off. And he ends with words of despair and desperation. I am not at ease nor am I quiet. I have no rest but troubles come. The gloom and the deep darkness have finally claimed him. Perhaps Job would have echoed the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, a Grief Observed, which is a moving reflection after the death of his wife. Lewis asks the question in grief, where is God? And he answers, this is one of the most disquieting symptoms. Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. And yet Job knows that he can't Turn away from that door. And right here in the depth of his misery, he knows he has to deal with God. And we'll see as the book unfolds, this is a great theme in his journey. Even in feeling God's absence, he is somehow there. And we see this in the word uh, given in verse 20. Light and life have been given, given by God, and therefore it is with God we must deal. Even in his absence, God is present as the focus of Job's loss. The gloom and deep darkness of Job anticipates a deeper darkness. Because 2,000 years ago, another blameless man was in gloom and deep darkness, hanging on a cross at midday. Deeper than the darkness of night. Deeper than Job's darkness. In some strange way, the darkness of Job's soul foreshadows the darkness of the cross. God has given us the language of lament, not only in Job and in the Psalms, but God has taken this gift of lament to himself in the person of his son. And from his lips come cries of lament. Jesus cried out with sorrowful and angry tears at the tomb of his friend Lazarus in John 11. He cried out from the cross in Mark 15 with the complaint, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which comes from Psalm 22. In his earthly life, Christ expressed his own costly love for the Father in the form of a lament. And Hebrews 5 tells us that he was heard. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And then on the cross he bore all sin, sickness, sorrow, and shame. He absorbed the full measure of God's wrath against our sin in himself. We read this description, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the person of Jesus, we have someone who comes alongside us in our frustration, in our temptations, and in our weaknesses. Jesus is the Savior who promises to help us in time of need. He became one of us. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Neither is he embarrassed by our sometimes angry, sometimes weary, sometimes bitter, sometimes hurt, sometimes fearful, almost always frail prayers and cries of distress. We read in Hebrews 2, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers christ experienced suffering he is the innocent sufferer he's the ultimate sufferer he's the one job points to the true sufferer the greater job he cried out like job cried out The entire book of Job is going to point us to Jesus. It's the only answer. Now, Job still has a long way to go. His initial burst of praise has now turned into this prolonged lament. And it's going to become an extended debate. And it teaches us that our Heavenly Father does not condemn us in our weakness. But He holds us in His loving arms. And one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. But until that day, lament will be part of how we express our faith in God, and in God the Son, and in God the Spirit. And so I ask you, have you learned how to lament before a sovereign God? You desperately need to, because there may come a time when you have to about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to bring all of our sorrows, all of our hurts, all of our anguish and anger before you. We're too often scared you won't receive us or hear us. And yet your word is clear that you want us to come before you when we're desperate and in despair, that you are the only one who truly understands, that you are the only one who truly comforts. So here our laments, our loud cries, and our tears. We do believe. Help our unbelief. And so work in each of our hearts as we learn from a man called Job. And draw us ever closer to the one who showed us the value of lament. As he bore all our sin, sickness, sorrow, and shame. And draw us ever closer to him, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ